Good morning again. Uh, you can open up in your copy of the scriptures to Philippians 2. If you don't have a Bible, we have more Bibles over on the table, and you are free to use one, take one, give one away, whatever you want. They're there for you. This morning we are continuing on in our series through Philippians, and we come to a a very familiar passage. Listen as as I read, starting in chapter 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let me pray for us briefly. Lord, this this is our prayer. That your son, Jesus Christ, would be exalted. That his name, his worth, his beauty, his glory would be lifted up in our hearts, that our eyes would be taken off of ourselves and put on to Christ. So Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my my heart be acceptable in your sight. Help us now to see wonderful things from your law as we see Christ displayed here in this passage. And do it for the sake of his name and for our joy in you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Yeah, okay. Amen. Uh, At 27, Benjamin Franklin determined to develop a process for living a morally perfect life. He reasoned that he had the ability to discern right from wrong uh, so that all he had to do was make sure, discipline himself to always choose what was right. So he listed uh, 12 virtues that he would aim to perfect. Temperance, silence, order, resolution, frugality, industry, sincerity, justice, moderation, cleanliness, tranquility, and chastity. Took as his models Jesus and Socrates. Upon finishing this list, he gave it to a friend to look over, and the friend looked, o- looked it over and said to his uh, friend, uh, you've missed one. 
And he knew in particular uh, there was one that he missed because Benjamin Franklin, who was a man who was often proud and condescending in conversation and was in particular need of perfecting this virtue that he had left out, was the virtue of humility. The virtue of humility. So he added to his list and he set out to try and make progress in these virtues. And out of all the virtues, he found that true humility was the hardest one to attain. He wrote this. He said, I cannot boast of much success in acquiring the reality of this virtue, though I have a good deal with the appearance of it. Fifty years later, his struggle with humility continued. He wrote in his autobiography, there is perhaps no one of our natural passions so hard to subdue as pride. For even if I conceive that I had completely overcome it, I should probably be proud of my humility. In our flesh, pride is always poised and ready, lurking just underneath the surface. And and to illustrate this point, I, I wrote a paper when I was in seminary on Benjamin Franklin's 13 virtues. And I went back, and I was preparing for this sermon. I went back to read the paper. And, and guys, as I'm preparing to write a sermon on humility, I'm reading my paper, and I think to myself, man, this is a good paper. I should send this to people. Like, people would like this. This is good. This is a really good. It, got, it literally took me a minute, a whole minute. 60 seconds went by before I figured out what was happening. I was like, I can't believe this. I'm literally writing a sermon on humility. You're a good writer, sir. Way to go. This is a good paper. Pride is always lurking and ready to seize our heart. And yet it's understandable why such a struggle would ensue in, in, in fighting pride. Not only must we fight our own internal inclinations towards pride, but we are bombarded by a society that tells us that it's actually pride that is virtuous. Uh, Muhammad Ali, the famous boxer, captures well our culture's sense when he said, it's hard to be humble when you're as great as I am. There it is. Our culture sees humility as the enemy of greatness. But God does not. The scriptures tell us that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Jesus told his disciples that whoever would be greatest among them would be the servant of all. And Jesus also said that whoever would enter the kingdom of God must humble themselves and become like children. Humility, as it turns out, is to be one of the defining traits of God's people. Did you hear what I said? Humility is to be one of the defining traits of God's people. In everything we do and say, we are to be marked by humility. Are you? Are we? As we continue on in Paul's letter to the Philippians, we hear again his emphasis on unity. He's writing to them to encourage them to make progress in their faith a faith that must be demonstrated in real unity. We talked about that last week. They must be of the same mind, the same love. They must be in full accord and of one mind. And then in the main command of this text, he says in verse five, 
have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. Now you, now you hear the repetition. The same mind, one mind, have this mind. What is he saying? He's saying that integral to the, to the unity that we are called to embody in our lives together is a common mindset, a common attitude, a common heart posture. What is that mindset? You, you probably guessed it. It is the mindset. It's the heart posture of humility. Without humility, unity dies. Or put simply, harmony requires humility. Do we have it? Well, before we can answer that, we need to know what it is. What are we talking about? What is this humility that Paul's talking about? And then we can ask, where does it come from? So what is it? What is true humility? Well, there, there are always two ways to get at defining any virtue. You can say positively what it is, or you can say negatively what it isn't. So for example, I could define honesty as always telling the truth or as never telling a lie. You see what I'm saying? You can define it positively or negatively. And first, Paul is going to help us define humility by telling us what it isn't. So look there at verse 3. We read this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Do you see the contrast? But Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant. You see, to be humble is to never be selfish or conceited. Now, you might think these two words are synonymous, and basically they do mean the same thing, but let me try and tease out what makes them distinct. The word in the original language for selfish ambition that Paul uses there comes from the root word for a day laborer, interestingly. It comes from the root word for a day laborer, and over time, day laborers uh, came to be regarded by upper-class aristocrats as grimy, lower-class workers that will do anything to make a buck. And so the word came to be associated with the base desire for gain, the base desire for the right here and the right now, to have profit, to have gain right now. No concern for the future, no thought of higher things, just the almost animalistic pursuit of my wants and my needs, selfish ambition. You see? Let me try and help you understand what that feels like. I know you know what that feels like, but when you're sitting and thinking about it abstractly, it's, it can be difficult. Do you, you ever been hangry? Do you know what that word is? Hangry? It's a, it's a clever blending of two words, the word hungry and the word angry to describe the indignant feeling when you get when you are very hungry. Where are my kids? There they are. There's my kids. There's some other kids. Kids, do you know what it's like to feel hangry? My kids are like, yes, I definitely know what it's like to feel hangry. Uh, when you are hangry, you, you selfishly lose sight of what's happening around you because all you're thinking about is how hungry you are. 
You, you, you pout, you moan, you complain, you yell, you lash out at those around you because hunger has made you miserable. Now that's a silly example, but it's an, in, it's an illustration of the soul condition Paul is talking about. A single-minded obsession with my wants and my needs such that you're willing to lash out at anyone who gets in your way. It's a mindset hyper-focused on what I want. I don't care what happens to the people around me as long as I get mine. And that's true, not just when it comes to, to having lunch or, di- or dinner. It, it's the sole posture of our hearts in our relationships with others, our friends, our spouses, our, our children, our employers, our employees, our neighbors, our fellow brothers and sisters. We view our life through the lens of what I want and what I need. And we see everything around us, including people, as commodities that might help us get the thing we want or as obstacles in the way of giving us what we want. Do you see why Paul says there can be no unity without humility? When you view the people around you as commodities that can either help you get what you want or stand in the way of giving you the thing you want, it's, it just puts an utter lance through the possibility of unity. There can be no unity where people are just tools that I use for my own self-satisfaction. But a lack of humility is not just an obsession with my needs and, and my wants. It's a desire. It's a, a longing. It's a yearning to be seen. A yearning to be applauded to be recognized, to be celebrated, to be center stage in the minds of others. It's a longing for glory. And that's what Paul means by conceit. If you're, if you have the King Ginger, did you, were you following along? If you have the King James version, do you know how the King James translates that word conceit? It's, it's it's wonderful. I I wish they would have keep this. It's an old timey word. But it's, it's, there's something special about it. Vainglory. That's how, that's how King James translated it. Selfish ambition and vainglory. That's what it is. Conceit. It's a, it's a desire for vainglory. The desire for self-glorification. You see, the heart that lacks humility is constantly wondering what others are thinking of them. When they walk into a room, they immediately begin comparing themselves with everyone. Where do they rank? They long to be noticed, to be seen as the most attractive person, the smartest person, the godliest person, the humblest person. You see? The heart is deceitful above all things. They are constantly concerned about their reputation and how they are perceived by others. They get angry when their accomplishments or their service is not recognized. But they may never show their anger because they're too afraid of what an angry outburst might do to their reputation. Now I'm putting it in the, the third person, the they, they, they. But so often it's, it's me. So often it's you. It's not, it's not them out there. It's us. Right? We're the ones chasing after our own glory. We live to be seen and celebrated, and in the end, 
we find ourselves slaves to the opinions of others. So that's the opposite of humility. But what can we say positively is the essence of humility? Look again at verse 3. We read, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. For Paul, there are really two overlapping ideas uh, that make up humility. It's assessing yourself honestly and assessing others honorably. Assessing yourself honestly and assessing others honorably. Or put it this way, humility is knowing the reality about yourself and thinking the best of others. You tracking with me? Now, as 21st century modern Westerners, we generally don't have a problem with the Bible telling us to think well of people, to be nice to people. We're not offended by that idea. We're more offended when we come to the, a passage that says, treat others as more significant than yourself. What? You, I'm supposed to consider myself as less important, less significant. That's the meaning. How dare the Bible say something like that? Think of myself as less? It grates against what you have learned for the past 30 years, really. I mean, if you, if you were a kid of the 80s or the 90s or the 2000s, you have gotten a steady diet of the world telling you that your biggest problem is you, you don't have enough self-esteem. You need to think more of yourself. That's your problem, really, is you don't think highly of yourself. And now here the Bible comes along and says, no, no, you need to think less of yourself. You need to think highly of others. You need to think less of yourself. For decades, psychologists have been telling us that at the bottom of our society's problems is a lack of self-esteem. If we just think better of ourselves, we will be better, and therefore we will behave better. This is, I'm going to try and put this in technical terms for you here. This is modern gobbledygook. It's nonsense. 20 years ago, a psychotherapist and writer, Lauren Slater, she wrote a piece for the New York Times. She called The Trouble with Self-Esteem. And she outlined the problems with this belief that boosting self-esteem is the answer to poverty, crime, and drug abuse, and domestic violence, and, and, and every other social problem. At one point, she highlights a task force that was created in California called the California Task Force to Promote Self-Esteem and Personal and Social Responsibility. It's a clunky title, but the point is, a whole group organized around raising the self-esteem of California citizens to impact the social problems of the state. And in the end, what they found was that the rising self-assessment of, self of their citizens had no bearing whatsoever on crime rates. Zero. At, at, literally at the same level, same level as their self-assessment rose, so did crime rates. The fact is, uh, the, so another researcher named Nicholas Emler uh, wrote this. He said, the fact is, we've put antisocial men through every self-esteem test we have, and there's no evidence for the old psychodynamic concept that they secretly feel bad about themselves. These men are racist or violent because they don't feel bad enough about themselves. They concluded that it was actually the people who had the highest levels of self-esteem who are more prone to violence and abuse. And for virtually all of human history, we have known this. It's, really, it's, a, it's a brand new idea. 
you know, you, you, listen, if you know anything about like ancient history, do you, what was the greatest sin for the Greeks, for the ancient Greeks? Do you remember? Hubris. Pride. The greatest sin you could commit. Pride. They knew it. But more importantly, we know it from God's word. Right? The word translated here, humility, literally means flat or low. What is it to be humble? It's to be lowly. It's to regard yourself as low. Which is not to say you, you assess yourself lower than you actually are. It's not like you're up here and you just, you just in humility, think of yourself as lower. It's to assess yourself honestly as you actually are. It's not that you're high, but you view yourself as low. It's that you see the truth of who you actually are, that you are by nature a creature and therefore low. And by your, your own sinful decisions, you are a sinner and by nature a sin, sinner and therefore you are low. It is to say with the psalmist, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Right? It's to see yourself rightly, to assess yourself honestly. But even more important to humility than regarding yourself as lowly is regarding yourself less. You hear what I'm saying? Even more important than regarding yourself as lowly is regarding yourself less. Uh, I don't think anyone put it better. C.S. Lewis famously wrote that real humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. That's why he supposed that if you ever came across a truly humble person, you probably would not be struck by how humble he is. He writes, probably all you would think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. You see, it is a regard for yourself that is so low that it's swallowed up by regard for others. It's a regard for yourself that's so low that it's swallowed up by a, a, a regard for others. That's why Paul follows up verse 3 by saying, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The humble heart is relentlessly oriented towards others. It is sensitive and attuned to the cares of those around them. The prideful heart is consumed with their own life, their own needs, their own thoughts, their own problems, their own experiences. But the humble heart is constantly moving out towards others with genuine care and genuine concern and genuine interest. Again, do you see how a lack of humility destroys the possibility of unity? Where you have people that are only out for themselves, for their own interests. What happens in a church, in a marriage, in any relationship when everyone is out for themselves? Well, let me ask you this. What happens when, when there are two kids who want the same toy and they're just pulling in opposite directions? The toy breaks and everyone loses. That's what happens. What happens when a group of people are built up with pride and arrogance and haughtiness, destroys unity. But what happens when, when a people are supernaturally humbled so that they see rightly who they are before God 
and are thus moved to consider the needs of others above their own. You get a picture of something like what we see in the book of Acts. Acts 2, 42, sort of this classic description of the early church. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs are being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. There's some strong evangelistic applications we can make here as it pertains to humility, but I'll save that for another day. The point is, do you see the kind of, of church, the, the kind of unity that God creates amongst a people that has been humbled? I don't know about you, but that's what I want this church to look like. That's what I want our relationships as brothers and sisters to look like. I hope that's what you want. So, so how do we get there? How, how, where does this kind of humility come from? It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? You read something like Acts 2, by God's grace, you look at that and you're like, wow, that, that's so beautiful. It's so wonderful. Where, where does the humility that births that kind of community come from? Oh, we don't have to look far. Paul tells us in the next verse. Look at verse 5. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, some take this to mean that Christ just merely is giving us an example, a a model to follow. And that's certainly true. It's not less than that, but it is infinitely more. Paul says this mindset is yours in Christ. And whenever Paul talks about being in Christ, whenever he uses that language, he's talking about our union with Christ by faith. To be in him is to be unified to him. To have union with Christ by faith is to be so utterly transformed and made new by his saving life and death and resurrection in such a way that we are actually changed from the inside out. People into people of a humble mindset. Not, not merely because we have this model or this uh, ladder that we are trying to climb, this standard of humility that we are trying to reach, but we are actually transformed in Christ. We have the mind of Christ. We, by faith in Christ, are made new in him. Now, what is it that actually transforms us? Paul just gives this very quick, this mindset is yours in Christ Jesus, but what is it that actually transforms us? He's going to go on. It's seeing two things. If you see these two things with the eyes of faith, you will be transformed by them in such a way that you will, uh, what will be created in you is a heart of humility. What are these two things that you have to see? The first thing you need to see is Jesus humbled, and the second thing you need to see is Jesus highly exalted. You see these two things, you see Jesus humbled and Jesus highly exalted, it will humble your heart in the most joy-producing, soul-filling kind of way. Look at verse 5. 
Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Never has someone made themselves lower than Jesus because never has anyone descended from a greater height than Jesus did. He was and is and will ever be true God from true God, the eternal Son of God who is the very same essence of his Father, all-powerful, all-wise, all-good, perfect in every way, not because he meets some standard of perfection, but because he is the self-existent standard of perfection. He is the standard itself. He is goodness. He is righteousness. He is justice. He is love. He is mercy. He is power. To him rightly belongs all praise and all blessing and all honor and all glory. Amen? From all eternity, he's the great I am who has lived in the loving fellowship of the Father and the Spirit, possessing perfect joy and peace and satisfaction without need of anything. Can you imagine the perfect fellowship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit for all eternity? And yet we read that Jesus did not count this reality a thing to be grasped, a thing to be clung to, a thing to be held on to. He willingly let it go. He, he laid it down. Paul says he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Now, theologians have spilled tons of ink on trying to explain what Paul means here. Does Jesus somehow become less than God? What does it mean that he emptied himself? Does he somehow become less than divine? How can he be the same yesterday, today, and forever if he can change, if at some point his his very nature has been altered? It's important here that you see that Paul's not saying that Jesus in any way loses his divinity or becomes anything less than God. Jesus emptying, emptying himself in no way means that he has become anything less than God. The scriptures teach And the church has confessed for 2,000 years that when Jesus came to earth, he joined to himself a perfect human nature so that he is forever both fully God and fully man. So, So what then does it mean that he emptied himself? What does it mean that he emptied himself? I, I heard this illustration in a sermon, so I can't take credit for it. Uh, but it was helpful to me, and hopefully it will be helpful to you. Uh, imagine an aboriginal chieftain to signify his high position in the, vi- the village. Whenever he is among the villagers, he wears a massive headpiece and an ornate robe. The headpiece and the robe say to everyone who sees him that he is the chief, that he is the ruler that he is the the judge, the religious leader, the protector, the head honcho. Now, imagine that one day a young girl in the village falls down a well, and she's stuck there at the bottom of the well, treading water, gasping, ready to die. 
And there are some men there in the village that try and hoist her out and reach down and grab her, but none of them is strong enough. They summon the chief, and when he arrives at the well, he strips off his robe. And he takes off his headpiece. And he climbs down into the well, into the muck. And he puts the girl on his back and climbs her up out of the well. Now let me ask you. When he takes the headpiece off and the robe off, does he cease to be the chief in any way? Does he in any way cease to be the the leader, the protector? No, there's actually some enhanced way in which him taking off his robe and taking off his headpiece and going down in the well, it it shows in in a clearer, starker way his his leadership and his love and his uh, protection. He strips off his robe and his headpiece, and so it is with Christ. He stripped off and laid aside the glory of his divinity, but never ceasing to be what he has been for all eternity. What he did was he took to himself weakness. He he lowered himself and took the form of a man. He came as a servant. He he didn't come as as a political leader. He didn't come as an intellectual. He didn't come as a as a warrior. He came as a baby the son of a carpenter, and lived his life as a poor, itinerant preacher, doing good to people everywhere. The creator lowered himself to become the servant of his own creatures. Do you hear what I'm saying? The creator lowered himself to become the servant of his creatures. But as if that were not enough, he humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. This is the supreme demonstration of his humility, that the very Son of God was crushed into the dust, into the grave, that he took to himself the humiliation of being condemned on a Roman cross, that he was ruthlessly paraded through the streets of Jerusalem, led out to a garbage heap, That he was stripped naked and hung on a cross among criminals. And finally, that the author of life, brothers and sisters, that the author of life subjected himself to death. Don't, Don't you see that Jesus, look, listen, don't you see that Jesus is the only person ever in human history that chose death? He's the only person that ever chose to die. Now, maybe some of you will say, well, what about the person that that determines to take their own life? They don't choose to die. They choose when they will die. Whether they jump off a bridge or die of old age, they're going to die one way or another, but not so with Jesus. Don't you see? He was a perfect man without the stain of sin, without the curse. He could have come into the world for 30 years, looked around and been like, peace out, guys. Good luck, I'm out. Ascended to heaven, never to experience death. That would have been right, that would have been just. But don't you see that Jesus chose death. He he subjected himself to death. 
in humility, he made himself so low, not only that he would serve his creatures, but he would submit himself to death. And it wasn't just any death, was it? It was a substitutionary death, right? For in that death, he took to himself all the pride and all the arrogance and all the haughtiness and selfishness and hubris and ego and glory-seeking of his people. He bore in his body all of our self-seeking sinfulness and was crushed under the unbridled opposition of God. Right? You know that God opposes the proud. And in Christ, he took on, at, at the cross, he took on himself the burden of our pride. He bore in his body all of our pride, and God smashed him into the ground. That's true humility. That's what humility looks like. But, but here's the thing. Do you, do you know when seeing Christ's humility becomes transformative? It's when you see Christ, the, the eternal Son of God, making himself so low that he would serve his creatures and die for them. It's when you see that reality and you understand that he did it for you. When you see Christ condescending and going to the cross, not as some abstract reality, but doing it out of love for you so that you might be raised up with him so that he might pull you out of the bottom of the well of your sin, out of the muck of your rebellion and your pride. You see, at the foot of the cross, beneath the shadow of our Savior, our hearts cannot help but be humbled. There we see who we truly are, right? When you you stand at the cross, you see two things. You see the real ugliness of your sin. You know, we spend our weeks and we rationalize and justify and we find ways to diminish the sinfulness of our sin. But there, when you go to the cross, there's nowhere to hide from the reality that your sin is absolutely ugly and heinous and worthy of God's complete and utter wrath and justice. At the cross, you see the reality of your sin and it humbles us. We see the reality. We see what we truly are. But you know what else we see at the cross? We, we see the, the unbridled wrath of God against sin, but we also see the unbridled love of God to his people in Jesus. We see God saying, there is nothing in Christ that I will not do. I will, Jesus Christ will absolutely lower himself into the dust and die so that your sins can be forgiven, so that you can be made right with him, so that you can have his own righteousness, so that you can be raised up with him. Jesus, humbled on the cross, sets us free from selfish pride. But here's the other thing. I told you, you need to see Jesus humbled. You also need to see Jesus highly exalted. When we see Jesus highly exalted, specifically in his resurrection and in his ascension and and in his exaltation, we are set free from the deadly pursuit of our own glory. Look at verse 9. Paul goes on, he says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord 
to the glory of God the Father. We lack true, joyful, sincere, free, loving humility because we seek to exalt ourselves. It is the deepest nerve center of our sin that our hearts long for our own fame, for our own notoriety, for our own glory. But I, can I tell you a secret? Everyone that has ever chased after their own fame and their own glory has been left disappointed with souls empty and impoverished. Every person. There's a, a, a late columnist named Cynthia Heimel, and she wrote a piece about the lie of celebrity. She wrote this. She says, I pity celebrities. She says, no, I, I really do. The minute a person becomes a celebrity is the same minute he or she becomes a monster. The celebrities were once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now they have become supreme beings, and their wrath is awful. And she says this, when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish. Now, we don't serve a God who plays pro rotten practical jokes on people, but she's onto something there. The, 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 the worst possible thing that can happen to you in your sin is that God can give you what you want. She goes on, she says, more than any of us, more than any of us they wanted fame. They worked, they pushed, they stepped on the other guy's face in their desperate need. They thought, if only I can be famous. And the night each of them became famous, they wanted to shriek with relief. Finally, now they were adored, invincible, magic. But the morning after the night, each of them became famous. They wanted to take an overdose of barbiturates. All their fantasies had been realized, yet the reality was still the same. If they were miserable before, they were twice as miserable now because the great thing they were striving for, the fame that was going to make everything okay, it was going to make their lives bearable, it was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness, had happened and nothing changed. They were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. Brothers and sisters, you, you are not made for your own glory. You are not made to worship yourselves. You are not made for your own fame. Your hearts were made for worship, just not the worship of self. The worship of self can only shrink and wither and ultimately destroy the soul. And yet so many of us spend our days trying to put ourselves at the center of everything. And maybe you're not chasing Hollywood celebrity, but every time your heart rages because you don't get your way, because you grumble about your circumstances, because you get angry with someone because they didn't do the thing that they wanted you to do, you didn't do the thing you wanted them to do, it's testimony that this sinful longing for self is native to all of us. And so how can we be freed from this slavery of worship of self? We need our worship redirected to where it rightly belongs, to where God intended it to be, to the exalted Christ to the Jesus who is seated at the right hand of the Father. We need to see with eyes of faith the one who actually deserves to be worshipped, the one who is worthy of all fame and all glory and all blessing and all honor. We need to look up and see the one who, whom God has highly exalted and the one on whom God has given the name that is above every name. 
Brothers and sisters, can, can you see him? Can you see him with eyes of faith? Can you see him, the, the crucified Savior, risen, ascended, exalted, glorified, seated at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning until all his enemies should be made his footstool. The, there he is, the Lamb of God, the Lion of Judah, the King, robe dipped in blood, eyes with flaming fire, crowned with many diadems. And there he sits on his throne. He's the one who cancels sin. He's the one who satisfies God's wrath. He's the one who pardons iniquity. He's the one who purchases our perfect righteousness. He's the one who rose from the dead. The one who conquered the grave, destroyed death, crushed the serpent's head. He's the one who has authority to lay down his life, authority to raise it back up again. He's the one who is the way and the truth and the life, the one who is true food and true drink. He is the one who is the great I am, who is the resurrection of the dead. He's the one who is eternal life. He is the one who welcomes failures, the one who redeems rebels, who justifies the wicked, who saves sinners, who keeps all his promises, who rescues his people, who tends to his sheep, who preserves his saints. He is the one who is a coming again to renew all things, to keep all his promises, to, to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords, seated at the right hand of God. Brothers and sisters, can you see him this morning? When you see him seated on his throne, you will fall absolutely out of love with your own glory. And you will desire only to lift up his glory, for he is worthy. Amen? At the exaltation of Christ, our hearts are set free from the soul-sucking pursuit of our own glory. Set free to pursue the glory of Jesus Christ in everything as we eagerly anticipate the day when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now listen, if you're here this morning and you have not yet bent the knee to Christ, you know what's interesting about that little, that, that phrase, that language of bending the knee is it really it can signify two things. It can signify the person who has bent the knee in joyful submission to Jesus because they see him for who he is, a good and gracious king. But it can also be the posture of a defeated enemy who has been forced to their knees in submission. Brothers and sisters, today, if you have not trusted in him, bow the knee in joyful submission, not because he is a cruel king who wields his power for your harm, but because he is a good king, a gracious king who makes himself low, who dies your death and rises from the dead, dead so that you might rise with him. And how is this received? Is it, is it for the mighty? Is it for the powerful? No. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Do you know what humility is? Humility is to see your need, is to come to Christ with hands empty, knowing your pride, knowing your failure, but trusting that Christ is sufficient. So brothers, let today, sisters, let today be the day of salvation. If you have not bent the knee in joyful submission, bend now, trust now, repent now. 
or you will know him as judge. You will remain his enemy, and one way or another, your knee will bend. Let it be in joyful submission and worship of him as our kind and good and gracious king. Now, you know, this, uh, this section of Philippians, I'm going to close with this. This section of Philippians is actually a hymn. Most, most uh, uh, theologians understand, they call it the Carmen Christi. It's the, the hymn of Christ. It's a, it's a song of praise. Probably Paul is borrowing a hymn that was already being sung and works it into his letter and basically quotes a hymn that was already being sung. And this is, so this is what I want you to say. Where do, what I want you to see. Where, where does a humble heart come from? A humble heart comes when we see Christ humbled and exalted and our hearts are lifted in praise of him. When our hearts are, when they see, when our hearts in light of who he is, we see who we are. We see our lowness, we see our weakness, and yet we see that we are the beloved of God, his own children, because of his work. And when we see him seated at the right hand of the throne of God, worthy of all praise and glory and honor. It's at that point that our hearts will no longer crave our own glory, but humbly sing of his God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you for this time in your word. And uh, Lord, we pray that you would indeed humble us under your mighty hand, that we would see our lowness, that our eyes would be taken off of ourselves and fixed upon Jesus Christ, our Savior, seated now at your right hand, the, the Lamb of God, the Lion of Judah, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, our risen and ascended Savior. Lord, cause us to live lives of humble unity, looking together to our Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.